linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I hope you didn't uh, think that I'd forgotten about you, because uh, every day for the past ten days or so now, I've been thinking that I really need to get this podcast out. You know, my plan a few weeks ago was to produce three or four podcasts over the holiday season, but that obviously didn't work out. And it wasn't because I was out partying. Uh, in fact, I didn't even attend a single holiday party this year. All I did was goof off. I can't even remember the last time there were so many days in a row during which I didn't get a single thing accomplished. But uh, I'm here to tell you that I feel great, I'm well-rested, and uh, I'm looking forward to an exciting year ahead. So let me begin this year by, first of all, passing along my sincere thanks to some of our fellow saloners who were kind enough to make a donation to help offset the expenses associated with these podcasts. So a uh, big 2010 thank you to Mark C., Stephen K., Howard F., John F., Andrew O., Sancho from the Lita podcast, and uh, Black Beauty, who you also know from BB's Bungalow podcast and whose silken voice you hear after the end of each talk here in the salon. Also, uh, BB is the one who provided the chapter introductions for my audiobook, The Genesis Generation. I really don't know uh, what to say to all of you other than, uh, hey, thank you very much. I sincerely appreciate your generosity. Now, there is one other donor that I would like to thank, and uh, like my fellow podcasters, uh, Sancho and Bibi, I think he has uh, already contributed more than his share to our community, and that person is my dear friend, Bruce Damer, who also made a major contribution to the salon last week. Bruce, as you know, uh, has been featured here in the salon a couple of times and is the only person uh, so far that I've uh, podcast on my other channel, MatrixCast.com. And uh, even without the donation, uh, Bruce was very much on my mind last week because of uh, all the buzz about the movie Avatar. You probably know this already, but Bruce wrote what uh, may be the first modern book about avatars back in 1998. And although he wasn't a consultant on the movie, I do know that he gave James Cameron a copy of his book several years ago. And uh, while it may be just a coincidence, the font that was used for the movie title is the same one Bruce used 12 years ago for his book. So much for the trivia, but uh, Bruce, your donation was not a trivial gesture, and I want you to know how much your love and support have meant to me during these past few years. And I certainly look forward to many more adventures together in the years ahead. Well, I guess I'd better save the rest of my chatter for after today's talk, which is uh, one I'm really excited about playing for you. Our guest speaker today is the one and only Ethan Nadelman. And in just a minute, you'll see why I say the one and only. Of all the spokespersons for the tribe, I think that Ethan is not only the best informed and most articulate, he's also great fun to listen to. I've only had the pleasure of hearing him in person twice, and both times were really fascinating. The first time I heard him speak was at the 2006 Burning Man Festival, where I produced the Planque Norte lectures that uh, he was a part of. Unfortunately, my recording of his talk that day didn't come out too well. But late last year, when he came to town to speak at an event sponsored by the wonderful organization Parents for Addiction Treatment and Healing, or PATH, I got to hear him again. 
And although this recording isn't a whole lot better than the Burning Man one, it's uh, still very much worth your time to hear, I think. So uh, now let's join Ethan Nadelman as he brings us up to speed on the state of affairs we commonly call the war on drugs, even though we know that this is a war on you and me. I have the wonderful um, blessing of introducing to you our keynote speaker, who is Ethan Nadelman. I met Ethan about 10 years ago in L.A., and I have been a fan since then. I will follow this man anywhere because I really believe what he has to say is so, so true. Ethan is the founder and executive director of Drug Policy Alliance, the leading organization in the United States promoting alternatives to the war on drugs. Dr. Nadelman is widely regarded as the outstanding opponent of drug policy reform, both in the United States and abroad. He's a former professor of politics at Princeton, and his speaking and writing on drug policy have attracted international attention. We are so, so privileged to have you with us here, Ethan. Thank you. Thank you. Mary, thank you. Gretchen, thank you. It's a, I guess it's been a few years since I was last here in this church, and, it's, 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 it, and it, for me this is the tail end of a, of a two-week trip. That Last week we were in Albuquerque, New Mexico, as Gretchen mentioned, and it was really an extraordinary gathering. I mean, over a thousand people. How many of you were there, by the way? Just raise your hands. Okay, so about seven or eight people. And, uh, and, and it was just an extraordinary gathering because it was people coming from across the political spectrum, people coming from across the drug use spectrum, right? From people who, you know, love their drugs, love their marijuana, their psychedelics, and for whom it's a positive thing in their lives, to people who, you know, just can't ever touch these things again because of the devastation that's happened in their lives, to people who don't care about drugs as well. People from across the drug law spectrum, you know, from the uh, people in LEAP who've enforced these laws for many years, uh, to people who just got out of prison serving five, ten, and twenty-year sentences for having been behind bars or have been arrested or harassed. And all of these people come together with really only one thing in common, which was the view that the war on drugs, that this policy of punitive prohibition uh, is a horror in our society. Something that just cannot be morally justified, cannot be justified in terms of health, can certainly cannot be justified in terms of public safety, cannot be justified in terms of any kind of fiscal prudence that I've ever heard of. Right? Just everybody coming together. I will say for those of you who were not there, just mark on your calendar, and I know I'm jumping ahead here, uh, but November 2nd or 5th, 2011, just under two years from now, lots of warning. <laughs> In Los Angeles, not that far from here, it's going to be, uh, New Mexico was extraordinary, it was electrifying, was the word people keep using about it. Two years from now, being here in California where so much is happening, uh, you got to be there. you got to be there. So one way or another, mark your calendar, save up your money. You know, it doesn't cost a hell of a lot. We do one of the least expensive three-day conferences in the world. Uh, we try to subsidize the whole thing, so make your best efforts. Now, just to get a read here, first of all, how is there anybody – does everybody here agree? Really, how many of you think that the war on drugs has failed? Please raise your hands. 
Okay, but now, how many think the war on drugs has, you know, not really been tried yet? We've got to give it more of a shot. Okay. Um, how many of you believe that marijuana should be made legal? Raise your hands. And how many of you oppose to legalizing marijuana? Raise your hands. Okay. And how many of you believe that essentially all drugs should be made legal? Raise your hands. Okay. And how many of you are against legalizing all drugs? Raise your hands. Okay, about split. And how many aren't sure about that? Raise your hands. Okay, so that'll say a little more about the not sure, and then the rest are a little bit split there. And, and so what I'm going to do is basically assume that you're there with me now based upon what you said. Now, I'm not needing to persuade you, you know, as I would with many audiences, about what's so terribly wrong with the war on drugs. What I want to talk about here really is what's happening in terms of the movement to reform. There's how do we take this stuff to the next level? What's going on right now? Why is it going on right now? And where are we headed? And I also want to throw out different thoughts and thinking, some of which I've been talking about for a while, some of which are much more new because things are changing so much right now, about, um, about the way, useful ways, I think, for us to talk about this. You know, part of what drives me, I mean, the, the key thing, I think, part of it is just this view that the war on drugs, as I said yesterday uh, in someplace else, is a cancer in our society, in our American society and in global society. And, you know, drugs are not the cancer, right? Drugs are drugs. I mean, drugs are plants or chemicals. They can be used as medicines. They can be used recreationally. They can be used spiritually. They can be used to ease pain. And they can be used in horribly destructive ways as well, right? The dose is the poison. Drugs have always been here. They're always going to be here. There's never been a drug-free society, except maybe the Eskimos because they couldn't grow anything, but leave that aside. Um, but, and there's never going to be a drug-free society. We are moving in, increasingly, into a world in which there will be ever more psychoactive drugs available, being devised and, and, and by the legal pharmaceutical companies and by the underground pharmaceutical creators. Um, I mean, one way or another, this stuff is not changing. The standbys, you know, the old faithfuls of, of tobacco and alcohol and marijuana and, and coca cocaine and opium, you know, whatever, they've been with us for thousands of years in one way or another, and they're going to continue to be part of our society and our lives, whether we like it or not. But we're also entering a new world in which the pharmaceuticals are going to loom ever larger in our consciousness, in our presence. I mean, how many tens of millions of young boys, mostly, are now on instance, of Ritalin or Adderall? And I don't say that's a terrible thing. I think we're doing too much of it. But I also know so many young people who have benefited from this. You know, I mean, all of the antidepressants and the Prozacs and what have you. You know, and the Viagra. You know, I mean, one day, I'm not there yet, but, you know, one day I'll thank God for Viagra, I'm sure, you know. Um, and I mean, so, you know, it, it's... That this is the wave of the future. As we understand more about brain chemistry, about treating things, that's going to be part of it. And as is always the case, the substances, the chemicals that people discover or devise to make sick people feel normal will also be used to make normal people feel a little better than normal. Right? And that's part of what it means to live with drugs. Right? I mean, you know, we, we understand that drugs are here to stay. We understand this notion of creating a drug-free society is a joke. 
It's a terrible joke, of course, because it's the joke that has put millions of people behind bars, that has arrested tens of millions of people just in the society alone. It's the joke that stood in the way of harm reduction policies to prevent the spread of HIV and Hep C. It's the joke that led to propagandizing of our children. It's the joke that led America for the last century to inflict horrific policies all around the world, from South America to Southeast Asia to almost everywhere we could touch. It's been that very, very bad joke. I mean, and it is in a way, of course, that notion of a drug-free society, it is ultimately a sort of totalitarian kind of notion, right? That, you know, this notion that we need to get ever, ever closer to a drug-free society, however that's hypocritically defined by the people who use that term, right? That we need to pay any price and bear any burden to reduce the number of people using these forbidden substances. That is the type of thinking, the mentality, which emerged in the late 1980s in the horrific drug war of, of our age, right? That re reminds me of other sort of movements for totally controlling people, for trying to get them to embrace a sort of ideology, a purist ideology in which you, you treat those who, who don't go along, who don't, who don't agree as somehow sinful, as somehow worthy of punishment, who somebody, at best, people to be treated until they get the message, until they buy into the right way, until they accept the gospel of drug freeness as the only permissible way and subject to the sanctions of the state if they don't. Now that, fortunately, that language is fading. It's losing its legitimacy. A few days ago, uh, Judge Jim Gray, who's in the audience here, will be on the panel later, he and I were at an event in L.A., and there was a, a young fellow from the Californians for a drug-free California. Or the drug-free Californians for a drug-free Something like that. But, I mean, and his rhetoric rang so hollow, I think, not just to me, but to the high school kids sitting in the audience. It, it was, what are you talking about? And you see, I mean, it continues to lurk, of course, right? It continues to exist in the fact that, that zero-tolerance policies in the schools, right? I mean, those are things. Zero-tolerance policies. You read the stories about kids being kicked out, not just for a joint, you know, but for a Swiss Army knife, or for an aspirin, or something else like this, something that might look like an aspirin. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, that's part of the manifestation, and it's part of what we need to keep mocking and fighting against at the PTA level, at the community board level. At the, that's part of uprooting this thing. It continues to lurk in the fact that the principal way in which people who are poor get drug treatment today, what's called drug treatment, is through the criminal justice system. But when, remember, people say, the only way I can get into a treatment program, I don't have the money to pay for my own thing, the only way I get it is by getting arrested first. And then you go into something which may or may not be a decent treatment program, but in which the only acceptable basis for you graduating from that program is a series of clean urines in which you establish you are drug free regardless of whether that's the best approach for you or not. It means that criminal, when drug treatment gets owned by the criminal justice system, it then becomes, drug treatment simply becomes a synonym for coerced abstinence. Abstinence, not abstinence which may be your best way of getting a drug home behind you, but abstinence which is your only alternative or the state will continue to deprive you of your freedom. 
right? So that notion of drug-freeness needs to be disabused as much as possible. It's part of what we have to keep fighting for. And even those of us who hang on to sobriety every day, who know that we can never use drugs again, who pride ourselves in counting the days and months and years of being sober, need to attack that drug-free notion. That's what, right, that what, that what may be right for ourselves, in our own lives, and for our families, should not be the basis of a societal-wide drug policy, should not be the basis for a criminalization policy regarding drugs. Now, I think the second thing is, I find myself, and, and I, if, you mind, if you don't mind, I'm going to be sort of reflecting because I, I've been this, you know, I've been on the road for two weeks. I'm almost never on the road for two weeks. And I, I've been speaking to married audiences and just, just picking up all these ideas and thoughts and, and sense of the changing momentum and movement. And so I'm sort of reflecting. And if I seem a little more halting or hesitant than I oftentimes are for some of you to maybe speak, I hope you'll forgive me. But it, it, it's, it's just a moment for me to reflect before going home. One of the things that I also find myself saying more and more is about... It's not, it's, it's talking about our massive incarceration, our problem of over-incarceration as an abomination, really. That this peculiar form of American exceptionalism, I mean, most of us, I imagine, are very proud of our country, although we're embarrassed at who was in the White House for the last eight years, and we're about, you know, embarrassed about things we've done, about, you know, ugly things. But nonetheless, we're, you know, we are a great nation, but a great nation always has its flaws. And one of the flaws we have, one of the ones that we've accepted, essentially, is that we should lead the world in incarcerating our fellow citizens, that we should have the highest incarceration rate of any society today, the highest incarceration rate of any democracy ever, that we should be incarcerating black men uh, at a rate that exceeds the rates of incarceration at the highest levels of the Soviet gulags under Stalin, right? That there's some, we've accepted that in a way. It's become the kind of um, stink in the room that we barely smell anymore because we've become used to it, right? And that that's what needs to be taken down. You know, and it's why more and more I find myself talking about the need to reduce our reliance on the criminal justice system as a moral imperative. That we need to aim to cut America's incarcerated population in half to pick a rough number. Right? Senator, Senator Jim Webb uh, from Virginia, I mean, who I've gotten to know a little bit this year, I can't figure it out. He's emerging as something of a champion for us on Capitol Hill. This is a former Navy Secretary for Ronald Reagan. Right? He's from Virginia. He's a Vietnam War hero, right? But he's a, he's a contrarian, intelligent, thoughtful guy who's a writer and journalist and all these sorts of things. And after he got elected in late, late, late 06, and somebody asked him uh, uh, whether he wanted to be considered uh, for vice president in early 07, and he responded, I don't want to be considered for anything until I figure out why we lock up so many people in America. Because, huh? <laughs> right? And it turned out it wasn't just a throwaway line. He started holding hearings on this sort of stuff. He started speaking about it. Now he's trying to get an independent commission appointed by Congress. Um, I'll talk about that later. Uh, but one of the things he said is, what's going on here with our incarceration rates? Why are we incarcerating people at three, five, seven, eight times the rate of most other nations? Is it that Americans are simply 
have more evil people than anywhere else? Or is it that there's something fundamentally wrong with our approach to this? And obviously he assumes it's the latter. And I think most of us assume it's the latter as well. We've become accustomed to this level of incarceration. And I think actually it actually permeates some of our own thinking. We somehow think that you keep using drugs, you know, you gotta go to jail, right? Or, 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 that, or that even people get involved in other you know, nonviolent crimes, that, that, that prison has to be the first resort, that you deserve to be punished, that you deserve to be punished by the loss of your freedom. Right? Now, if you look, I was just had an opportunity to go to Europe, uh, and, and it was in Denmark and a few other places, you, you know, and you see there's a presumption there that, wait a second, prison should be the last resort, yeah. right? That people who use drugs don't really need to be behind bars. And people who sell drugs, we haven't quite figured out what to do with them yet, but aren't there some other ways to deal with this sort of stuff? And that people who commit other sorts of offenses, nonviolent offenses, you know, aren't there problems about restitution, other sorts of ways of dealing with this? And while people who steal or hurt other people do deserve to be punished, does that mean that prison is the best way to punish them? And is it the best thing for society and the best thing for them and their families and even the people who were victimized by that? Right? So it's pulling, it's, it's addressing that. The the more we get out there, the more we can talk about the moral imperative of needing to reduce America's problem of over-incarceration. The more we use the language, as Senator Webb is using, of over-incarceration. That we need to get that term, over-incarceration, into the popular dialogue, into the popular language, right? You know, I mean, one of the things that, 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 that of course, is driving this among many things, is that we become accustomed to it. But while we became accustomed to it, a very powerful political force emerged in our society, which was and is the quote-unquote prison industrial complex. And I never really used to use that phrase until about this year, because I don't like jargon, right? Prison industrial complex, right? Um, but then when we put together Proposition 5 last year, you know, I mean, the, the opponents of Prop 36 kept, kept trying to whittle it away and cut it and nickel and dime it, and we kept beating them in court. We just beat them in court again, you know, but, but still, it's, uh, thank you. Um, it, it's, it's, we did Prop 5, which if it had passed, would have been the biggest reform of prisons and sentencing in American history. It would have shifted a billion dollars a year from prison and parole to treatment and rehabilitation. It would have reduced the California prison population by 25 to 30,000 people very quickly and in ways much more responsibly, I think, than is now being forced by the courts. It's a good thing the courts are forcing this, but there was a method to what, was, what we were trying to do there. It also, unlike all the other initiatives on the ballot, would have been a net savings to the taxpayer. Because the billion dollars of, of the billion dollar a year cost in treatment and rehabilitation, it would have been more than paid for by the reduction in incarceration costs. Right? And then what happened? You know, we even talked to the prison guards union, and they said, you know, we think the prisons are full enough. You know, we're worried about working conditions for for our, our, our prison guards, and you know, we don't really need all you know. And we thought we had an understanding that they would stay out. And I think maybe the head of the union was say, speaking in good faith when he said they didn't see having to jump in. But, you know, in the fall of last year, you know, there were tough union elections in the prison guards union, and the parole officers started worried about losing their jobs, and all of a sudden they said, okay, a decision was made in Sacramento by key people, we're going to nail this one. 
And the prison guards union put in two million of their own dollars. They raised two million dollars more. They got Diane Feinstein and Jerry Brown as the faces of their ads. You know, how often a week before the election you had all four or five, you had Schwarzenegger, his four predecessors, and one wannabe governor, Meg Whitman, all standing up at a press conference together. With How often does that happen? And what's the one thing they had in common? Was that they wanted to nail, they wanted to nail Prop 5. They did. Jerry Brown, we had a relationship with. We could get to him. You know, one of the key drafters, my colleague Dan Abramson, you know, called him up. And at first, Brown starts ranting and raving about this stuff. And then Dan starts saying, well, actually, that's not right, Jerry. That's not right. All of a sudden, Jerry Brown started getting quiet because obviously he didn't know what was in it. He'd only heard about it from people in the prison guard criminal justice system. He said, oh, we'll have to get together right away. We've got to talk. Well, he didn't return the next dozen calls from Dan Abramson. And a week later, he shows up in ads, being paid for by the prison guards. Now, the definition of power, right, one of the definitions of power is when somebody tells you to do something, and you do it without even asking why. That's a definition of power. Somebody tells you to do something, and you do it without even asking why. That's the power of the prison industrial complex today, and that's why I use that phrase. When they tell elected officials and others they want them done, people don't stop and say, well, wait a second, let me see the fine print. What's this really about? What's really going to happen? What's it going to cost the taxpayer? What's it going to do to human lives? What impact is it really going to have on drug abuse in our society? They don't stop to ask. They just do it. That prison industrial complex. So I'll tell you something, you know, you know, uh, Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell speech in 1961 surprised many, many Americans by speaking about and warning about the looming power, the power of the military industrial complex. I hope it doesn't take until January 2017 for President Obama to give a speech warning about the ominous influence of the, mil- of the, of the prison industrial complex. Because that is, that is part of what's pushing this thing and driving this thing. We need to find ways, and I don't have the answers about what we do about this. I don't have answers for this thing. But we have to push them into the defensive. We have to get them to the position where they, too, are thinking creatively about how to reduce the number of people behind bars. It's your state. I don't know how you feel about what is it. The highest paid state employees in the yes. state are the prison guards, yes. right? You know, California that used to be known as the state of higher education is now known as the state of higher incarceration, right? right. You got students standing up and striking because they don't want to have one third, you know, tuition pay raises, right? But there's no money, you know. And one of the places where the money is going is that ever-growing prison industrial complex, right? I mean, it's it, that's something that fundamentally needs to change, and even in. New York, you know, where we've the, we've led the country in New York in reducing the prison population. New York State's prison population has declined by I think more than 10% in recent years, as a part of as, in part because of Rockefeller drug law reforms, but for a whole set of other reasons. But even there, some of the prisons were empty; they couldn't close them, right? Because what about the jobs of the people working there? Those guys are at the front of the line to make sure they keep getting paid by the government to keep empty prisons open, right? That sort of power. So we need to take that on as well, right? It's, it's about trying to challenge that power, challenge that power, and hold people accountable, hold people accountable. I gotta tell you, the prison guards are not popular. I mean, prison guards union, I should say. I mean, prison guards, you know, look, they do a dangerous job, and this is not about them as human beings or as individuals. But a union, when you live in a society where one of the most powerful political forces is the organization, 
which earns its livelihood from keeping its fellow citizens behind bars? I don't know of any other free society in which that is the case. That's a distortion. And once again, we've become accustomed to it, but it's something that could be challenged in moral terms as well. Now, I was saying that one of the things that drives me is this feeling about the horrific nature of the drug war. But the other part, and it's part that gives me, it's both an, it's an everyday challenge, but it's also uh, something I just love about, you know, building the Drug Policy Alliance and being involved in building this movement and working with wonderful allies from, you know, the marijuana groups, you know, Normal and MPP, Americans for Safe Access, ASA, which is active in San Diego, LEAP, Law Enforcement Prohibition, the Harm Reduction Coalition, the folks working on the psychedelics issues, the folks working against mandatory minimums, all of these wonderful organizations. And quite frankly, you should join as many of these as possible. And I hope not one of you will leave this room without joining the Drug Policy Alliance. Okay, you can sign up someplace around here, back in the back there. Mar Margaret Dooley, Margaret, stand up. Mar Margaret's my colleague. Margaret, who has been a key organizer around Prop 36, who played a pivotal role in Prop 5, who works out of our LA office but lives in San Diego. Um, so she's your local right here, but please don't leave here without joining. But one of the great challenges in all of this is, is really in building a movement of people who are coming from such different places. Jim Gray was just saying this to me. We're all, we're all coming from wildly different places and coming to the same conclusion. And I want to talk about that a bit. Because, look, it's in the nature of any movement. When people say, why can't we just all get along together? Why do we have to keep fighting with one another? And, and my response to that is, give it up. The reason we keep fighting with one another is because we're human beings, right? You can't have a powerful political movement without fighting with one another and arguing with one another and getting into all sorts of things, right? You can't have a political movement in which the people you hate the most are your fellow allies. Right? Because your enemies are there over there. You don't hang out with them. But you hang out and you have to compete, right? And for, for credit and for funding and over girlfriends and boyfriends and over tactics and strategies, you know, with your fellow allies. So it's inevitably part of the process and let's not pretend that it can't be. But the key, of course, to building a movement is keeping your eye on the prize. It's remembering that no matter how much we fight and struggle, and sometimes even really dislike one another, that nonetheless we have a common objective, that what unites us is more important than anything else that pushes us apart. That's a pivotal thing for us always to remember. Now, but that's not always easy, right? Some of us are Republicans, Independents, Democrats, Greens, Libertarians, you have it, and we don't agree. I oftentimes keep my political views on a whole host of other subjects quiet. I don't talk about that stuff oftentimes, right? Because, because I have a mission. I have a mission to bring the people together about this, right? And, but it's not always easy. And that's what's so beautiful when you come to our international, you know, biennial conferences. You're seeing people coming from these different places. And sometimes they, they're looking around and like, you know, here's somebody who's got 12 years of sobriety. And right next to him is somebody, you know, with marijuana leaves in their, you know, dreadlocks and shit, you know? And like, what are they doing here? And there's a session on psychedelics. And there's a session on people in recovery against the drug war, huh? I mean, so it's, it's a constant challenge. Now, but part of it is, and, and here's how, part of it is finding the, 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 the language of this. I was speaking to one of you earlier who's a, who's a pain physician in town, and I was saying, you know, I remember I, I was up in uh, Bozeman, Montana a couple months ago. Bozeman, I've never been to Montana before. People in Bozeman are very proud of being from Bozeman. They love Bozeman. Bozeman's got a lot of local pride. 
And I was there for a few reasons. In the morning, I spoke to an annual meeting of pain physicians, and mostly from Montana, but also the surrounding states. And that evening, I went to a gathering of the cannabis folks. They each of them had about 250 people there. In fact, the gathering of the cannabis folks was very interesting because I walked into something, it wasn't a Holiday Inn, but something like a Holiday Inn, and there's like 250 people in a room like this, and, and there's tables around, and, and this is marijuana plant, like up to here, right? And I'm like, wow, I mean, you know, you know well, that's medical. It's a medical plant, right? And, and then somebody tugs up my sleeve and goes, no, come see my plant. I mean, so I saw, you know, Montana legalized medical marijuana a few years ago, and so things are opening up. But one of the things I was careful to say, was when I talked to the pain docs in the morning, and they're you know they're dealing with all the oppression of oversight and people persuading. You know, and I said, but one thing I was careful to say was I said, listen, I can't perceive, I don't see one single basis in ethics or science, medicine, even the Bible that matter, for any one of you professionals in the field of pain management to refrain from recommending marijuana, even in its smoked form, when there's evidence that that's what's gonna work. That this notion that you can't smoke your medicine, hey, smoking your medicine may not be the best way to take it, but for some people, it may be the best way to take it. And there is a whole benefit-cost ratio when you think about which medicines are the best medicines to use. There is no absolute principle in medicine, you know, first do no harm. Well, the first do no harm means that you give somebody a recommendation so that person is not a criminal for using a medicine in a smoke form even, which is the best thing for them, then that is the right thing to do, ethically, medically, and what have you. There is no basis. And that evening, I went and talked to the cannabis group. They said, let me tell you something. We know, most of us here, in this that room there, we are the ones who love cannabis. Cannabis has been good to us, right? But when you're celebrating cannabis, whether you're talking about its medicinal benefits or the other benefits that you perceive about cannabis, don't damn the opioids. Don't damn the physicians using opioid medications. Because quite frankly, even though the opioid medications may be more dangerous and the risk of overdose and, and death is greater, they are also powerful and effective medicines for tens of millions of people and have been so for millennia. And the people in that area are dealing with levels of discrimination and ignorance and intimidation by law enforcement, by medical boards, by law enforcement authorities, very much like what you in the cannabis field are dealing with as well. It's not about juxtaposing and saying, this, my drug is better than your drug. It's, when, when I remember some of my allies in the marijuana reform movement, and they would say, you know, we gotta legalize marijuana so that we can, so that we can crack down on the bad drugs. No, stop that, stop that. Yes, marijuana is not as dangerous and it can be made and there are better beneficial properties than methamphetamine or cocaine, what have you, right? I mean, there's lots of problems with the stimulant drugs. We all know that and they can be harder to control and they can be more problematic, but that doesn't mean that those people deserve to go to prison. If you want to say let's bang up on violent criminals, okay, but when we already have 2.4 million people behind bars, why don't we just make the argument its own term without saying let's bang up on somebody else instead, right? It's, I mean, that's part of what it means to build this sort of thing like this. I'll tell you, when it comes to what does it mean to be in recovery, well, there are many definitions of recovery, really. I mean, we can hold on. Some of us can say, no, there's only one definition. I accept that. But whether you want to, and I'm not going to battle over the words we use, but 
for people who have struggled with drug addiction, there are many paths. And sobriety is not an end in itself, right? Sobriety is a means to an end. Sobriety is a means to learning to live in a society full of drugs in a way that drugs no longer do harm to you or that you no longer do harm to others because of the availability of these drugs. But sobriety is one means. Millions of people cling on to sobriety and need to and should be clinging on to sobriety and counting those days and taking pride in that and being as drug-free, drug-free, because that's what they need. But it's not the only path. There are others for whom a medication, whether it may be methadone or buprenorphine or even pharmaceutical heroin, which is increasingly being used in Europe and Canada. It may be other types of things. It may be antidepressant drugs or anti-anxiety drugs, right? It's understanding that for many people, this is no longer their drug of abuse, but it is their medication and used in the proper way. I sometimes feel bad for people who are in sobriety and oftentimes find themselves having, feeling they have no choice but to be live in immense pain because they're afraid to take the pain medications that could be properly prescribed and because they just don't know if they can take that chance, right? I know people in recovery for whom, you know, in fact, you see this more and more in the medical cannabis dispensaries and in their clientele, people who've been severely addicted to cocaine, meth, heroin, alcohol, and now what do they do? They smoke marijuana. And smoking marijuana, even sometimes a hell of a lot of it, and maybe they're even addicted to marijuana, because you can be addicted to marijuana, addicted in the sense that you use a drug in ways that cause harm to yourself or cause you to cause harm to others, right? But nonetheless, for them, marijuana, or I have friends for whom, you know, they had cocaine, heroin, whatever, and now you know they're marijuana and wine. And they're not addicted, they're not dependent, or maybe they're a little dependent, but they lead dynamic, full lives, right? And for them, a token in the evening, a glass of wine with dinner, they put those other things behind them and they found that they can stabilize at this level. For other people, in the harm reduction world, you see this, people who had let their lives get out of control using injecting drugs, well, they've now found that just taking the drugs orally or relegating their use to the edges of their life, to the weekends or the times when their kids are around, that they found ways to control this stuff. So I define recovery, and I'm not imposing this definition on anybody else, so we can use another word if you like, but I define recovery as getting to the point where your drug use, if you use drugs, is no longer impairing your life, is no longer impairing your living. That that's the real objective. It's to get on with life. It's so that the availability and inevitability of these chemicals in your life, right, are not, are, are, not, are not destroying or undermining it. It's that you have control, whether it's in denying them or in controlling them. And I realize that this is a risky and dangerous message. I realize that for people who hang on and for whom AA and NA have been so pivotal, to say that there are other people who can put a problem behind them and continue to use it is a risky and scary thing because it suggests that maybe you can do it as well. So there's always that. But the flip side, to deny that, to say that there is only one path, that there is only one path to recovery, it's not true. It's not consistent. It may be a message that's dangerous for some people, but it's not consistent with the truth, with the truth of millions and millions of people's lives. You know, a friend of mine in, in New York was invited to join a recovery coalition, and he said to the guys there, you know, he, he, he said, he said, look, I'm a, I, I still drink wine, and, and I smoke the occasional joint, and not, you know, am I in recovery by your terms? And he was surprised when they said, yes, you are. 
if your drugs are no longer undermining your life. Part of our moving forward as a movement, because remember, <laughs> we have all different sorts of relationships with drugs, good, bad, and indifferent. But we have to keep our eye on the prize, which is ending the intense war on drugs, the policy of punitive prohibition. Right. Another way to think about this stuff, I sometimes look at the areas of, uh, of, of, of pain medication and addiction treatment. And I think, you know, if somebody, if you or somebody you love is in intense pain, right, and you're the doctor, let's say it's your child or your parent, and the doctor says to you, well, which pain-killing drug would you prefer I give them? Would you prefer I administer morphine or Dilaudid or Demerol or, uh, or uh, our fentanyl or codeine or methadone or diamorphine or, uh, you know? And the odds are your answer is going to be, doctor, I don't care. I want you to do whatever is going to help my loved one, you know, take away their pain as much as possible while retaining their basic humanity, their basic personhood. And if the doctor then says to you, well, how would you like me to administer it? Would you prefer I do it in an oral form, injectable form, a patient-controlled analgesic, a patch, how about a lollipop, you know? And you'll say, doctor, I don't care. Whatever's going to work best to accomplish that bottom line, right? And when we think about pain management, that really is it. It's about reducing the pain as much as possible while we're hitting people's essential personhood. And what the drug might be, we rely on our physicians as well as our own personal experience to get a sense about what those, the best forms of administration, the best drugs. Well, in dealing with addiction, especially opioid addiction, right, once again, I think that the answer is if you've been addicted to, 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 to opioids or especially, let's say, street heroin or whatever, and the question is how do you get that addiction behind you, right, the question is what's going to work best? Maybe it's going to be methadone, right? Fred, we know the scientific evidence from dozens of countries is that methadone maintenance done right, dosed correctly with respect for the patient, probably works the bestest for the mostest in terms of taking the issue of, of drugs out of your life. It's your medication, right? I know people who've been on methadone for many years and they have families and they, they drive cars, they have a business, they have families, what have you, and they say, I am no more a methadone addict than a diabetic is an insulin addict, right? That forget how I got this problem, but this is my medication now. Right? But for other people, in Germany, they used to ban methadone. They had 50,000 people on codeine maintenance. It was working pretty well. In France, which used to ban methadone, they had 50,000 people on buprenorphine. Right? I mean, and, you know, other places they even used oral morphine. And now you see happening in, as I say, Europe, you know, in, in Germany, in Switzerland, the Netherlands, England, Spain, and Canada. And in a few months, Denmark will start prescribing diamorphine, the name for heroin, right? In a pharmaceutical form. And people getting into these clinics and these programs, and you know, the, just being able to normalize their lives. Because what we know about these opioids is ultimately they don't destroy your organs. They make you constipated, but they don't destroy your <laughs> organs, right? I mean, you can live to be 90 or 100 taking pharmaceutical doses of opioids. It's not like alcohol to your liver or smoking cigarettes to your to your lungs or even stimulants if you take too many of them, what they can do to your heart, right? And, and if you, so why can't we do that? Why can't we, the, the Vancouver study called Naomi, North American Opiate Medication Initiative on heroin maintenance, one of the things they did was they did in a double-blind uh, 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 study, they gave some of the people in the study who had been long-term injecting heroin users, 
They gave them Dilaudid instead. I don't know, how many, how many of you have ever taken Dilaudid? Do you know? Anybody raise your hand? Okay. Long-term injecting heroin users given Dilaudid could not tell the difference between Dilaudid and heroin. What does that tell you? tells you that a pain medication that's been used probably by millions of people is essentially identical to heroin. What makes heroin heroin? The fact that it's called heroin, exactly. right? It's the whole thing around it, the whole thing around it, you know? And it's, a, but if you change the name, there was somebody who, in Vienna who gave a, a doctor, he gave a talk to the city council and he said, uh, he said, you know, this is wonderful medication and it's, it's effective in reducing illegal heroin use and reducing crime and arrests, how people improve their health, da, da, da. you know, and he kept referring to diamorphine, diamorphine. And, and finally the people on the city council said, so I mean, why are we using diamorphine widely? He goes, well, the problem is that the other name for diamorphine is heroin. <laughs> but it's about the name, it's about that thing and it's getting past that thing. It's about accepting that each one of us who has struggled with drugs has to find their own path and that the role of the state should be to certainly not to get in the way and optimally to facilitate this. And it's also drawing on the evidence that when the state gets out of the way or that even when the state uses its resources to facilitate, it lands up being a net savings for the taxpayer. Because when you reduce those emergency visit costs and those arrest costs, you can pay for stuff like this. I mean, analogously, there's a wonderful study. Uh, there's in Toronto and in Seattle, they've come up with uh, something called wet housing. They figured out that the skid row alcoholics, basically, of which there are still many in every city in America, that they were costing taxpayers roughly a few hundred thousand dollars a year because they would land up either in local jail or in the emergency room 20 to 30 times a year, if not more, right? And that was something you do, right? That's what these, these, people, these people might well die if they stopped drinking, right? I mean, it was that level. what they do? They said, we're gonna provide a house, housing, where you can go, and it's not going to be an alcohol-free house. You can drink there. We're not going to provide you with the booze, but you can drink there. Right? People came. You know, some people, you know, you provide housing for drunks so they can drink. I mean, what next? Well, what happened? They did a study that was just published in JAM, the Journal of American Medical Association. Turns out people lived in the house. Only a few rules, you had to be civil, you know, you only get kicked out, you didn't get kicked out for drinking, right? You got kicked out if you were really horribly obnoxious or not taking care of your housing responsibilities. The levels of arrest in emergency room uh, emissions dropped dramatically. The savings to taxpayers was tremendous. You know what else happened? The people in the housing, now that they had a place where they could drink as much as they wanted, started drinking less. Why? Well, the most obvious reason, and this applies to all drugs, right, is that one reason why people, especially people who are really hard up, use drugs, is that when you don't have four walls, privacy to call your own, drugs provides that. Drugs gives you that space. You get high, you get drunk, it closes out, right? You know, you're sleeping on a grate, you're living in fear of stuff, you know? 
it closes out, it separates you. And when you provide people literally with four walls of their own and a bed and a space where they can close the door and have that privacy, the need and the desire to keep killing that pain, to closing out, to creating your inebriated psychological walls diminishes, right? You know, I mean, it, it, it's about, I was debating somebody the other day, and he, he was kept advocating for this approach where the police focus on on the heavy-duty criminals, you know, the ones who, you know, the, the old 20-80 rule that 20% of people, 20% of heroin users consume 80% of heroin, 20% of alcohol users consume 80% of the alcohol. That's true with many, many drugs. It's also true with 20% of people, criminals can, can, can commit 80% of the crime. It is true. Public opinion in support of ending marijuana prohibition is growing more rapidly than I said among various sectors of society in terms of support for making marijuana legal. But I don't forget the 1970s when people got overconfident, when people started to think, it's our time, when they started to make unreasonable demands on elected officials to embrace our objectives right now, which was foolish and which was premature, when they ignored the fact that there was a rising counter-movement that was gaining ground and appealing to people's fears, when they ignored the fact that when 10% of American high school kids were saying that they were smoking marijuana daily, that was a problem that needed a responsible solution, not a poo-pooing. It meant that this is the time, as we're building a movement, when we have to get tougher and smarter. It is precisely when things seem to be on your side, it's precisely when you see the obstacles rolling away, when you see it making momentum like we've never made before, that's the moment when you double up on your defenses. You don't get reckless. You don't get incautious. You know, I'm out there, I've seen my friends over here before, about, you know, for me, for the first time this year, I made a decision that I was going to start talking about my own marijuana use in the present tense, not just the past or the, you know, being sneaky about it. To say, yes, I am a marijuana user. I am somebody who uses marijuana occasionally. I am somebody who's found it beneficial in my life. And saying that openly and publicly in major media places, what have you. And I made decisions I thought the language is changing. But that doesn't mean I'm going to get reckless and careless. And keep in mind, the more and more people that come out and say I am, it means the more and more chances that somebody coming out and saying I am is going to land up doing something stupid. And then become the poster child of our opposition because that person who came out, look what they were doing with their kids in the back seat. Look what they were doing. This is not the time. It means that for those of us who do use drugs and do enjoy drugs, ever before it means that the best, one of the best elements of reform is to ensure that we ourselves are using drugs responsibly, that we are being judicious in our language, that we are being smart and thoughtful. And the last thing I'm going to say is that there's a core principle underlying this entire struggle. It's a core principle which needs to become part of the popular dialogue in our country and around the world, but it's one that you virtually never hear an elected official say. And it's this, that nobody but nobody deserves to be punished simply for what we put in our bodies, action harms others. Nobody but nobody deserves to be punished or discriminated against or amongst based solely upon what we put in our bodies if we don't hurt anybody else. Get behind the wheel of a car, different story. Hurt somebody, different story. And don't tell me that your addiction or disease made you do it because you still need to be held responsible. That's the nature of any responsible, civilized society. But 
Whatever I put in here, whatever you put in your own body is your own business. It is not the state's, it is not your employer's, so long as you are doing so in a responsible way that does no harm to other people. That core principle, that I am sovereign, that we are each sovereign of our own, own minds and bodies, that is the core principle we have to keep putting out there. Because in a world in which people keep believing in drug testing and, in, and, in, and, in, and we have more and more intensive surveillance systems, external surveillance of where our bodies are, internal surveillance about drug testing, what drugs we put in here, we need that core principle. It's a core element of what it means to fight for freedom. And it's not just the freedom of people who can use drugs responsibly, it's also the freedom of people who are addicted to drugs. It's about their entitlement, their basic right, their human right, not to be treated as a criminal, either because they use responsibly or because they are addicted to this substance. Now, that principle may seem removed from the broader incarceration of millions of people around the world on drug charges. It may seem removed from the broader Jim Crow nature of the war on drugs today. It may seem removed from the whole massive incarceration system, but it's not. It is the sort of not. It is the piece. It's the core that if we can popularize this principle, we'll land up bringing the drug war down and leading to a fundamentally different system, a different way of dealing with drugs in our society based upon science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Wow, see what I mean? What I wouldn't give to have every elected official in the land listen to one of Ethan's talks. How any rational human being could continue to support the war on drugs after listening to Ethan, I don't know. And uh, while I realize that under the present so-called educational system in the United States, this uh, idea isn't possible, but just think of how interesting a high school or college drug education class would be if uh, they played this talk and then discussed it rather than just uh, being bombarded over and over with just-say-no platitudes. Too bad old Nancy Reagan didn't know how to spell very well. Had she been better educated, she may have known that her little just-say-no idea would have actually been a winner had she spelled it K-N-O-W. But, uh, hey, that's another story. And speaking of other stories, I want to read to you an email that I received a week or so ago that has given me much to think about. And uh, I hope it'll get you to thinking, too. This email comes from Chow, and its subject line really caught my eye. It was, Blue Collar Psychedelia. And uh, here's what Chow had to say. Lorenzo, a recurring theme has come up in a series of conversations with various friends, centering on the idea of what I will simply call Blue Collar Psychedelia. This is not the psychedelic exploration of some well-heeled trust fund journeyer. No, this is a working man's and working woman's psychedelia. This is a psychedelia for those of us who do not have the privilege of hopping on a jet and cruising down to the Amazon for an ayahuasca ceremony. This is a psychedelia for those who can only seek out those profoundly spiritual moments, those moments of mind-bending beauty and clarity from the confines of their current life situation. I need not remind you that times are tough. Many of my friends find themselves both unemployed and unable to find work or currently employed but with the looming fear of a layoff just around the bend. It's at times like these that we do what we can to get by. We live in shitty apartments, perhaps work two or three minimum wage jobs and eat as healthy as our budget will allow 
And it's also at times like these that the need for consciousness expansion, the need for new perspectives on the same old problems, is in high demand. Our imaginations and the promise for real change are in need of a reawakening like never before. The question I would like to present to you is as follows. Is there a way for the blue-collar Voyager to have in on this movement? Or are we simply confined to hearing reports from those Voyagers privileged enough to have the free time and proper space to conduct these mind, body, and soul journeys many of us can only dream of going on? This is an amazing moment in time, a historic moment for the psychedelic community. We have the chance to reignite and build a more sane, responsible, and balanced community of psychedelic Voyagers. I would hate to see this reawakening of the human spirit be confined only to those who have the privilege of finding the proper set and setting simply because monetary means have delivered them to this position in their life. Many in my generation will not have the same opportunities for monetary prosperity as those who have come before. We understand this and are trying to let that reality sink in. But we have also come to understand that serious consciousness expansion and exploration is not something reserved for only the select few. Is there a podcast or an interview somewhere that you could point us to that would address some of the concerns I have brought up? Would you be willing to have a guest on the show that could speak directly to the more financially strapped part of the community? And trust me, this is a large part of your listening audience. Any resources you could share with us would be greatly appreciated. Your show has been a bright light in an increasingly dark time, and I thank you kindly for the work you put into it. I look forward to being more and more involved with this bold and burgeoning psychedelic community as it forges ahead, with or without the consent of governing bodies and the culture at large. Peace. Ciao. Well, Chow, your point is well stated, and I think you have pointed out an important flaw in some of the advice I've been giving here in the salon. As you know, whenever someone asks how to get more involved in the worldwide psychedelic community, my answer is always the same. Go to a festival, go to a conference, go to Burning Man. And I guess the reason I've been saying the same thing over and over is because uh, that's about the only thing I've figured out myself. That's how I did it. But you hit the nail on the head when you pointed out that only a very few people can afford to do that. In fact, uh, lack of money was the main reason I didn't go to Burning Man myself last year. And now that I think of it, uh, the only festivals and conferences I've attended recently have been ones where I got in free and had my expenses paid in exchange for uh, speaking. So your question applies also to my current situation. And I sure wish I had some answers myself, but my guess is that between us all, we should be able to come up with some new paradigm for what you call blue-collar psychedelia. And by the way, I, I think you've hit on a terrific tagline there, Chow. And uh, you are also correct in saying that uh, no doubt a significant number of our fellow saloners would call themselves just that. And uh, that includes a lot of my closest friends as well as how I see myself. Now, one of the things about your idea, Chow, that uh, has captivated me is the fact that for years uh, a bunch of us have been complaining about how in ancient times the class of high priests, pun intended, uh, forced the common person uh, out of the inner sanctum of the temple and kept all the mushrooms for themselves. You know, before that there was only blue-collar psychedelia uh, because there were no priests claiming to intervene for them. 
And what Chow points out so well is that uh, we seem to be carrying on in that tradition by not taking the time to figure out a way for people who don't have any extra cash uh, to be able to share in this great work. Ideally, uh, wouldn't it be nice to have some kind of an online community that could even be accessed through free computers and public libraries and places like that, where it didn't even require you to have your own computer and net connection? Of course, uh, right now there are forums at thegrillreport.com, and uh, that is a very vibrant, exciting, and uh, continually growing community of psychonauts. And it may even be the seed of what is to come. Uh, what with the continuing advances in tech that we've uh, been seeing in these past couple of years, uh, I now think that uh, it won't be too long before we see what I think of as uh, sort of large holographic wired telephone booths where I can uh, jack into a little group conversation where, in holographic form at least, uh, we could sit around a fire, uh, passing a bag of vapor around and uh, telling our stories to one another. Now, that may not sound like much, uh, may not sound like an ayahuasca adventure, but uh, I'll tell you what, uh, sharing stories around a fire is uh, really what it's all about, I think. Uh, in fact, right now I'm thinking uh, of one of the stories in the latest of the Dope Tribe Dispatches uh, from dopefiend.co.uk, where uh, one of the tribe members told about his uh, five-day train ride across Russia and on to China, where he uh, shared a cabin with an old Mongolian woman smuggler and her exploding whipped cream can. <laughs> oh, what I wouldn't give to uh, hear that story in person, or almost in person, like uh, a good hologram might produce. And uh, that tech is here now, by the way. It's uh, just too expensive at the moment to get out of the lab, but it'll be here sooner or later, and when it becomes affordable... Uh, Maybe we can all combine our resources and uh, set up a few nodes of our own to share locally. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm sure that uh, all of us and our friends can uh, come up with parts of it. I'll do what I can to uh, set up ways to exchange ideas and try things out. And uh, sure, I'd be more than happy to have guests on to uh, discuss that. But why don't we uh, make it a point this year to figure out a number of ways for our friends without money and jobs to... uh, actually form the core of the worldwide psychedelic movement. You know, uh, Timothy and Terrence are gone now, but uh, they did help us find some of the others. Now it's up to you and me and the rest of the tribe to figure out new and better ways to uh, spend time in one another's company, at least virtually. It was, uh, I don't know how many years ago, but several years ago, I was a speaker at a conference that Bruce Damer organized, and it was held entirely in cyberspace. Now, compared to today, the tech was somewhat primitive, but the experience was fantastic. Uh, I can still remember what I think of as me standing in a big auditorium, talking to someone whose avatar was standing next to mine in a little chat space, while we were both listening to the Master of Ceremonies present awards. Uh, In fact, I may have even written about it in the Spirit of the Internet a while back. My point being that it was a very real experience of being in the presence of a large number of people, all the while uh, sitting in a corner of my apartment. So I know that uh, something like that is at least possible. So now, uh, hey, it's up to you. Uh, Any and all ideas will be very much appreciated. And I guess we can uh, start by putting them in the comments section of the program notes for this podcast, uh, which you can find uh, via psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, from there, we'll figure out what to do next. And I know how uh, it is. Uh, You probably have a couple of ideas already, but you aren't at your computer right now. And uh, unfortunately, if you're like me, you're 
liable to forget about them and this podcast <laughs> by the time you get home tonight. Uh, but I hope you don't let this pass you by because uh, you may be the one with exactly the idea that is uh, needed to help our community become even more inclusive. It's a great challenge you've uh, presented us with, child. So, uh, hey, thanks for getting it started. Well, that should keep you busy for a while, so I'll go ahead and close today's podcast by reminding you that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you are interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>